Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. Today we have a listener, Ryan Swiner, who is uh, joining us to talk about basically tech hacks for democracy. But before we get into that, and before I introduce Ryan, uh, per usual, I'm going to read a five-star review on Apple Podcasts of the show. Um, As I've said before, if you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, I'll read you on the show next. All right, this is from someone called Chill Politics. That's what their account's called. Having turned from deep conservative to more of a moderate liberal over the last decade or so, I've been struck by how toxic and mutually exclusive the dialogue has become during that time. It's very easy to forget that the person on the other side is just a person with different experiences. Conversations like this are the only way to break us out of our information loops and bubbles and challenge or refine our perspectives. The hosts are cool, intelligent, knowledgeable, and I enjoy hearing as they hash out the details. Thanks a lot, Chill Politics. Or actually, I'm sorry, Chill Politics was the title of his review. His name is Kanuko. Kanuko. wonder what that means. All right, say hi, Ryan. Uh, hey, yo. Uh, so, Ryan, tell us a bit about yourself. I understand you're a software engineer and you were uh, in the Air Force. You're uh, an officer in the Air Force. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, uh, currently, I'm CTOing um, a little startup and... Uh, I was also an Air Force officer for about five years, and I went to the Air Force Academy before that. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's been my the the basics of my background. Um, and uh, I think we got introduced through a a mutual uh, friend follower on Twitter who just said, "Hey, like, watch some of the things I was saying." And he was like, "Hey, you should talk to Rio." And I was like, oh, "Okay." And then a couple of weeks later, you chimed in. And we're like, "Yeah, sure, I'll do that." And like, "Okay, I guess we're doing a podcast now." Right on. Um, okay, so um, so Ryan, ta- I mean, we're going to talk about tech hacks for democracy. So obviously, your professional experience as a software engineer is relevant. Can you talk about a bit about how working in software and and, and studying coding helps you think about democracy tech hacks? Yeah, yeah. So it, there's sort of a convergence of technologies and ideas um, that are especially relevant uh, with the cryptocurrency bull run going on right now. Naturally, a lot of those ideas are du jour and relevant um, because when you think about democracy and uh, decentralizing, decentralizing power is sort of the core idea of democracy. And it's also- Yeah, I like the sound of that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also the core idea of of a cryptocurrency. And it has led to this idea uh, of of a decentralized autonomous organization. And this is basically where you have- um, a group of people, there's a pool of governance tokens that essentially uh, they, they form your unit of egalitarian control, maybe not quite egalitarian because there's potential for a person to accumulate you know, more and essentially have more reputation or voting weight if a system was organized that way. But you could have an egalitarian, you, you could really set up the rules, you could get very meta, set it up however you want. And I guess that would be the subject for debate. But then you know, once you had those ground rules and voting rules set up, you would then have essentially a system where you would create proposals, uh, you could create taxes, you could have a means of currency issuance, uh, policies, a way to aggregate funds, all that stuff could be done in a completely decentralized way where there's no, there's no government. And it, it ostensibly in the same way that we do in open source software, where we have tens of thousands, millions of people working together synchronized on projects where they they don't know each other and creating massive contributions like uh, like anything in Linux, any of the open source libraries that the internet depends on. Uh, there's no reason to believe that you couldn't apply the same logic to a government and develop a sophisticated system where you could uh, raise armies, create laws, um, and perform all this stuff essentially and have no face to it. Um, sort of a, a crazy idea that I've just recently discovered. I was calling it wiki government for a long time where I had this idea that, Hey, if you had a failed state, whether it's in like in Africa or Cyprus or something where people suddenly had a massive uprising of, uh, just, just anger toward a government where they decided against the legitimacy of that body. Um, how would you replace it? And it made me think about how, um, Africa sort of skipped traditional telephony in a lot of places. They went right to cell phone towers. They went right to the most modern technology. And uh, smaller states are also where cryptocurrency, like Venezuela and places where there's currency troubles, hyperinflation, are also becoming the source of legitimacy uh, for cryptocurrency in the real world. Uh, I think, you know, if you were to 
had to choose between a very expensive government and going through big elections and setting up buildings and putting a dictator in power, basically, would you rather do that? Or would you rather set up a Wikipedia page and say, this is where the laws for the citizens are. Everyone go there and write the rules that you want. Like that's a, a comically small um, example that, you know, has a lot of obvious flaws, but that's essentially the core of the idea is like, why do we need direct why do we need voting? Why can't we just write the laws? Like I, I have been surprised, I must confess, um, at the quality of Wikipedia entries, not the errors don't slip through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when really like blatantly false stuff goes on there because someone is basically trolling it, yeah. it tends to get taken down very fast. Um I wonder if the motivation, the extra real world motivation of the fact that you're creating law that has an impact in real life. Um, might dramatically increase the demand for that kind of quote trolling, so to speak. Although I suppose, I mean, they could they would be trolling it kind of like Donald Trump trolled our democracy, which is mm-hmm. to say to try to achieve a real, actual, real world outcome by mm-hmm. kind of bashing against the system and, um, you know, uh, gaming the system at best, cheating at worst. Yeah. Uh, so what I mean, I I I know that crypto is extremely secure, but. I'm I'm more interested in the possible downsides of the human element. I mean, let's assume, I mean, obviously <sighs> what you're describing couldn't happen in the United States without basically rewriting the constitution. Yeah. Um, but I like the idea of democracy hacks within the U S as ways to make our existing democratic system more representative and more secure. And yeah. so I'd like to talk to you about that, but then I'm also intrigued by your, your very grassroots bottom up building of a democracy idea Um, as you said, in particular, when it comes to helping spread democracies abroad. Um, But what what are the human limitations of that? I mean, assuming that the average citizen is even literate, how do we prevent it from just going off the rails? Yeah, I've I've started to think about this as well. And um, one of my thoughts was, well, why why do we have representation in a republic? And it's because we have this sense that we sort of do want to choose um, our betters to make the decisions, like people that have a little more uh, judgment that are a bit more in- invested and public and accountable, that we we have the sense that that creates better outcomes. And you know, the core thought to that is avoiding the downsides of mob rule. And so you know, if, I, if I pull that back to first principles- Yeah, that's but- definitely something our founders were concerned about. I think it's p- worth pointing out that at the time, um, most people uh, couldn't vote. Um, we expanded the franchise a lot over the years. Uh, and one of the reasons the founders limited who could vote to white landowning men, um, when, you know, setting aside the obvious implications of racism and sexism, the landowning part wasn't totally random because it was the idea was that it was, you know, the gentry of the society who presumably at least knew how to read would be electing representatives. And then the best of those would be the people actually building the government, right? Because, we, you know, at, that, at the, the time of the founding of our country, the average citizen couldn't read, which is the case in a lot of these uh, countries where we might want to help spread democracy. So how do we get around that problem? Yeah. So I, I started thinking that you need a sophisticated um, reputation delegation mechanism. And we did this, we do this with elections, ele- electing like a congressperson, uh, because that's a that's a way that makes sense in like a world, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago where you can okay, okay, everyone in this geographic area, you guys elect your representative. That person helps make your decisions. There was no way to record in a database that, um, you know, Joe on this corner delegates his decision making pr- powers on architecture to Kelly on this corner. And, you know, you can, but these are exactly the types of problems that the internet excels at. Like if you imagine um, a friends of friends graph on Facebook where um, we could take advantage of the natural tendency toward hierarchies that human beings have and we could okay, create a- now you're speaking my language. <laughs> yeah. 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 We have, a, we have a nat, we have natural hierarchies. And so like, imagine, you know, if we all had to make decisions on how to build a rocket um, we wouldn't get the best results through egalitarian decision-making. We would all get the best results. You shouldn't just vote, have everybody vote regardless of their level of expertise about rockets, about exactly, you know, all this, the, the specifications of said rocket and then expect yeah. it to fly. Yeah. 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 It's sort of my, that's my thinking is like, okay, we want, I, we want to delegate power, but I think one of the best ways we could delegate power, it would be to split up the subjects on which we delegate power. Like, 
like let's say if we all deferred to Elon for rockets because by you know you could make worse arguments that you know he's the best person for us to delegate all of our decision making on rockets to and so like Elon is god on rockets but nothing else okay so they they would still be sort of electing a representative in this in this case it would be like the the rocket guy yeah and it could be fluid like it could be followers like maybe you follow someone one day and not the next and so like it uh, i i'm afraid to say like imagine the world run by twitter because that sounds like a hellscape <laughs> oh yeah no that but, would definitely be mini steps backwards <laughs> yeah. my, 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 i'm very happy to say that my real life experiences are far better than twitter yeah my conversations in real life are better than in twitter heck my conversations on the podcast are better than on twitter twitter is a, a cesspool of bullshit yeah. And you know, I actually, I think it's the, it's the world's event. Um, I wonder, I, I think that if you give people properly in line in, incentives, you get the behavior governed by those incentives. And I think a lot of what you see in Twitter, you're getting this lens into the disempowerment in the world. And, um, you know, it's like someone can get real mad and say, ah, I'm gonna kill that person. But if they were actually in the room, the voice, the tonality, the actual intent would probably change, you know? Um, same thing where I think if you had a decentralized government system where people knew for a fact that like there was no go between between them and real power that, um, oh, I'm actually, I'm actually changing, affecting the rules that govern me and other people. I think, uh, and there's a natural, there's a good case study about this in, uh, Mongolia. Uh, I was trying to remember the Ted talk I saw, um, where one of the examples this guy brought up is uh, Mongolia had an instance where they brought 800 random citizens from around Mongolia to come into the capital and help them shape uh, some important policies around um, their constitution. And they were surprised by how well thought out a lot of these common people were like without necessarily a legal education or experience writing policy, they did a, a great job being just and reasonable and coming up with uh, laws they thought would be good to govern society. Um, and so I sort of have that same optimism for a system that really empowered everybody where you, you understood that you were holding a loaded gun. And so you'd act like it. Huh? Yeah. If I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm more cynical than you are, but I'm, I mean, I, I guess at a minimum, I would say it'd be interesting to run that experiment and see how it worked out. And of course the way it works out in one, one, one instance doesn't mean it'll work out the same way in another instance. Um, yeah. but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think, I think that, um, if I'm thinking about like the U S U S politics, for example, right. Mm -hmm. Many people here don't vote at all. And we are the world's oldest, most well-established, um, democracy. We have our flaws, um, and people who copied us had a chance to learn from our successes as well as our mistakes. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit of a disadvantage, uh, that we didn't get to learn from our own mistakes in that way. Uh, at least not in terms of the, the constitution, because since amending the constitution is so difficult. Um, but you know, still a lot of people don't vote. Uh, voter voter turnout is really low. Most of the people who do vote couldn't tell you much about the candidates they're voting for. They tend to just vote for like a Republican or a Democrat because, you know, they have a, a vague, usually not particularly sophisticated understanding of the, the, the policies of those parties. Um, there are a lot of like single issue voters where all they care about is that one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess I'm playing Devil's advocate, but I'm also kind of expressing my my own view. Like I I think that I think that we should reform democracy in the U.S. to make it more representative and more secure. Mm -hmm. um, but I just don't feel like direct democracy is something that the average person is going to be able to handle the responsibility of. So, can you persuade me otherwise? Hmm. Um. I mean, I guess this is a theoretical experiment since what you're describing isn't even possible here, but we're talking about doing it someplace else. So it seems like a way to make it personal. I have a, I have a thought experiment um, for for that, but I'll get to I'll handle uh, I'll get to your um, question first. But I have a, a not sure if it's dystopian, but I have a, a thought experiment around how something like this could go. Um, but um, I, again, I think a lot of this hinges on the fundamental disempowerment people feel. I mean, it's it's imagine. Imagine you didn't like how your DMV was run, your local DMV. And like, as a citizen, you wanted to change how that works. Like you wanted them to update their website, 
do do anything that would make that process run better. I mean, I know from personal experience being in the military, sort of there's some there's some um, implicit understandings that go with working with governmental systems that are just disempowering and and old. And I think that's the core of most people's detachment is uh, that it's not it doesn't it's not respectful of their time in a relevant way, and it's not really doesn't even really account for. Uh, what they want in a meaningful way, like you, like you said, um, and I think this is this is one of the downfalls of a um, traditional democratic system is that we elect people on bases that have nothing to like, no correlation with the work that they're actually going to do. And this yeah, is I not mean, you arguably could be a downside of democracy itself, though. It's kind of what I'm getting at, right? Is I, I think it was Winston Churchill said, "Democracy is the worst form of government, other than all the other ones." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, <laughs> like that, it, it's worked out pretty well. And honestly, I'm, it's almost surprising that it's worked out as well as it has. Yeah. I guess that's like, you know, because you're talking about people feeling disempowered and, you know, um, uh, the Yang's Yang's movement, of which I'm a part, mm. um, has a lot of people who are disenchanted with politics and very cynical and, 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 um, and populist and so forth. Mm. Um, I tend to, to actually... I'm I very rarely meet another Yang person like myself. I'm actually coming at this from more of like a pro status quo position where I see the 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 angst out there as a mm-hmm. threat to the status quo. Mm-hmm. And I actually think the status quo works really well. Like, um, did you read um, uh, Stephen Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, Ryan? Uh, I haven't read Enlightenment or now. listen, listen I, to any of his lectures on it. I read the better angels of our nature though. Okay. That's a, some, yeah. So, so enlightenment now he basically kind of picks up where better angels left off mm. and he talks about like all of this solid evidence that the fruits of the enlightenment, like democracy and the rule of law, um, constitutional protections of individual liberties against mob rule, et cetera, have actually resulted in the most peaceful and prosperous societies in the history of the world. Um, and he basically just makes the case that just because it's not perfect yet, and then, you know, in parentheses, l- the classic liberals of the Enlightenment didn't believe utopia was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that we're never going to achieve that is the implication. And therefore, like, should we really throw the baby out with the bathwater just because, you know, things aren't perfect? Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I want to try to preserve the status quo by calming tensions down and de-radicalizing people through things like UBI. That's where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. I heard a, I heard a, an interesting mental model for, for, um, uh, shaping conversations, uh, like this. So, so you can argue that any idea goes through sort of a four step phase in, in a political world where you go from idea, uh, to advocacy and uh, to mainstream adoption and then implementation. And, um, I find myself as an engineer biased towards steps one and four and uh, two and three advocacy and mainstream adoption are not really my, are my strong suit. Whereas I feel like most, most political discussion hinges around advocacy and mainstream adoption. Cause that's, that's, what's important in, you know, if, if you, if you get those, those two, you can assume four. Um, and uh, so, so I would say that, yeah, by and large, you know, we have, we have the least, we have the least corrupt system of all the systems. Um, but we, we got there arguably through the first principle of decentralizing power is a good thing. Yeah, Decentral- no, I agree with that. I mean, you, yeah, pa- absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so I find, I find myself taking that, um, idea and running with it and just saying like, okay, well, let's, let's bootstrap that and let's take that to its logical extreme and see what we can do with our, with our modern tools. But if I, if I step back to, uh, what about, what about, uh, you know, hybridizations, um, uh, modifications to a system that, that already works? Um, could we, uh, could we have that? That's like a, it's a much more, it actually tends to, to, be kind of muting to someone like me because it actually is much more difficult. It's much, much more difficult to, to work on, um, you know, you, you, your brain can't naturally answer all of its own questions like it can when you formed your own, um, abstract mental model. Uh, you actually have to know a lot of things. So you actually have to know a lot of things to, uh, to intelligently speak to reshaping, um, uh, a functioning super system with, you know, 300 years of history. 
Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I, I guess what I'm a little pushback on the decentralization thing. Yeah, I think that decentralization is one of a dozen or two dozen principles that we could name that were all um, considerations, right, that our founders had. And um, I, I think that I think that going taking anything to its logical extreme is potentially a risky enterprise. Right. And yeah. so. Yeah, and so the idea is that you you temper one set of concerns with other sets of concerns, mm-hmm. um, and so obviously times have changed since our founders set up our democracy. And as we've said, you know, this is really a hypothetical experiment here. Um, I'd like to move on to talking to about uh, some specific things we can actually do in the United States next. But using using this as an example for the purposes of whether or not it would work someplace else. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wonder if taking it to its logical extreme is maybe focusing too much on that one aspect of the enlightenment and overlooking others. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I sort of, I sort of think there's two things that are really important. One, that decentralization is really important. Um, but also the other, the enlightenment idea of sort of having a Republican democracy where you, um, where you do delegate based on reputation. I think that's also a really important uh, aspect. And I think the things that we can do now to make those decisions with the scale of our communication unlike you know, any other point in human history um, gives us the opportunity to delegate reputation in, in, in useful ways to actually have like um, a super effective form of Okay. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing you say is that the system, so like, let's say we decided to solve this problem in Myanmar, right. Mm-hmm. And we somehow managed to overthrow the military dictatorship there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're, we're now we're going to hand it over to the people of Myanmar and let them create their own democracy from the bottom up. Yeah. Um, this piece of software that we give them would have built into it some code to like steer it along. It wouldn't just be completely up to them to do whatever they wanted full stop would it or would it yeah you you would totally um shape the rules of it so let's say that you okay let's say that you packaged up um you packaged up a uh, a direct democracy fork of the u.s code into a decentralized system and then let's say uh, we as the government we we drop off this this software package uh, it runs on a bunch of nodes, so no one really controls it or can shut it down or stop it. And then the U.S. government injects five hundred million dollars or five hundred billion dollars into it, uh, and that becomes, let's say, the source of a UBI in in that system. So, like, if if you subscribe to be accountable to this system through your crypto wallet or whatever, now you're receiving funds, and you decide that you're beholden to this um, decentralized system over the geographical system that you're being subjected to. Uh, but now you and all of the other Myanmar citizens can uh, create proposals and then vote on them by establishing quorum. So you'd have to, you know, obviously have important rules about quorum um, to you know, decide to implement a decision the same way a corporate board or something would. Um, but let's say so would that, the first step to be to create a constitution or would there be one built into the software or some hybrid thereof? Yeah, I think you can choose any number of starting points. So let's say that you you bootstrapped it with a constitution and then you created an amendment process that had an exceptional quorum requirement or something like that, um, that, you know, you can you can only change it a line at a time. And like just like on GitHub or something like that, uh, you have to submit diffs where people can literally see a red line of uh, words on the left for what's being removed and a green line on the right for what's being added. And so like, you know, every, every significant change, you'd have to basically create a proposal. People would have to review it. You know, you might bake in a review period. You might bake in. I see. So you wouldn't actually be able to go in and just edit a, edit a law in a simplistic way. Like you can on Wikipedia, even if it gets undone later. Right. Yeah. So Wikipedia, because the stakes aren't as high as a governing system, they have a reputation system, but it's just through through scholarship and stuff. So like if someone hijacks an article uh, and and someone looks at it and goes, that's not quite right. They go to the person who they believe to be an expert on the subject and they say, hey, can you look at this and tell us if we should leave it or reverse it? And, uh, you know, but it's not the same as like, hey, should we have capital punishment? And then let's go find the capital punishment expert and see if he wants to overwrite this or not. Um, and so like, 
Yeah. So you, you'd have to have, you would want to have a, the, the meta part of it worked out pretty good. Like obviously there's going to be no perfect system, but we know enough about government that we, we could conceive of a system that had a good arrangement of checks and balances based on what we know from enlightenment style thinking where you have a separation of powers, but the, the new stuff would be, um, the direct proposal writing basically like if, if our referendum system were extremely efficient is sort of like how I imagine this being, if referendum were an extremely efficient common use tool, um, and you had a way for people to, to, to delegate authority on certain subjects. Like I might, I might not feel like I'm an expert on, um, infrastructure. So I find my nearest infrastructure guy and I give him, you know, there's a connection established between me and him that says that this person's thoughts on infrastructure account for, you know, 30% of the authority in this particular geographical region. And then this person, you know, you can imagine these things that computers do very easily that we could account for and, and keep track of to where you could establish essentially a meritocratic system where people had power in their okay, like individual that. domains where like, I want Elon Musk to have an outsized amount of authority on rockets and electric cars. I want him to, I want his voice to matter more. And than it's the people who decide who those people are or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. the idea is that like, we, we want to take a bit uh, advantage of the emergent properties uh, that are available to us. And you know, it's like, you know, we don't have visibility into all the eyes of people ar- around the country, but like, you know, people around them know who the, they know who the smart and effective people around them are. And oftentimes the best people to lead on certain subjects are not the people that have the narcissism to pr- pursue power. Well, I, I'm, I'm finding a lot of the, um, the specific things that you're talking about building into the system reassuring. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep pushing back and, and being devil's advocate a bit here. Sure. Um, right. So what if say 51 or 52% of the population are, are anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorists, and then they decide that they want to make, you know, like their, their equivalent of Gwyneth Paltrow in charge of epidemiology. (laughs) Oh oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's a tough one. That's okay. So, oh, so this brings me to, um, uh, there's another idea floating out in 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 the the ether, although I can't really use that word because that's a real thing in the crypto space. Um, so there's this project called Chainlink um, out there, and I, I read into it a little bit, and it, it was essentially this idea. Um, you know, one of the problems we have on Twitter and in the social media verse is untrustworthy information, um, and people distributing untrustworthy information have no disincentive. It doesn't cost them anything to spam the world with bad ideas, basically. Um, and so by analogy, let's take, you know, if we go into the cryptosphere, it's very important in the cryptosphere to have reliable prices. So um, you essentially, but you say to yourself, well, where do I look? Where do I look for a trusted stream of prices? Because I've got a piece of software that's going to make like very important decisions based on whatever it thinks the current price is. So who do I trust? And um, one of the answers that the communities come up with is oracles. And uh, Chainlink essentially has this idea where, okay, I'm going to create a price oracle. And in order for you to trust the validity of this oracle's information, uh, it's going to put lots of money at stake in a smart contract. And every time this oracle emits bad information, there are validators out in the world that can um, that can essentially stake a claim against it and start taking away from the funds of that oracle. Uh, it's just sort of this concept of proof of stake that you know you submit that you're a good actor because you have real skin in the game. Um, and so, like, I feel like if you went on Twitter and in order to be a user on Twitter, you had to put fifty thousand dollars at stake, and if uh, you start submitting bad information or bad tweets, uh, you start losing money. I think that would be a pretty compelling incentive that would uh, draw down on the amount of. <laughs> so only on people who have $50,000 in the bank could go on Twitter. Uh, that's actually by analogy. That's sort of what the Ethereum blockchain is doing now with validators. If you, uh, so, I mean, that's actually still significantly less money than it used to take to become a big, big player in communications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like it it it's sort of like um it's sort of the same gentry idea. It's like as as people we're going to pick some we're going to pick some qualifier 
that makes you a quote unquote real person to make decisions. And it seems like, uh, yeah, I can't imagine the populists are going to get behind that one, Ryan. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it depends. You know, maybe they pool. Maybe like maybe that's how the populists would work is they would pool their influence to get, you know, a real vote versus the rest of the gentry. Like that's that might be the compromise. Like if you um, kind of like how the, the UK had the, the House of Commons and the House of Lords, that was their solution to that problem of the unwashed masses. And which, you know, uh, it's, looking back on now, it seems so antiquated and classist but also at the time it was a perfectly reasonable concern <laughs> yeah uh, have you i who was i now another another talk i was watching um uh describing the way that media has changed and how governance has changed and uh there was basically just a, a 19th century 20th century 21st century analogy where he said the 19th century government leaders weren't really accountable to the people. The people really had no, like information was all local. Your, your local township made the newspaper and that's what you knew. And people knew different things all over the country. And um, there was something very analogous. Like if you're a Senator in Washington in the 19th century, like you're making your decision based off of like what God told you or something. Like it's not really based on polling. And then the 20th century is, is uh, marked by uh, the centralization of media. And, you know, so you have, Mao, you know, for instance, in China, broadcasting the Mandarin dialect throughout China. And that's how that actually is what united the communication of China. Or, and you've got uh, Gallup creating the polls in uh, 1930. And all of a sudden we had sentiment from the people. But what we also had was centralized broadcast communication where everyone was kind of getting the same information, the same dialogue. And so everyone felt like they were making decisions about the same things. And so there was a unification. I mean, that is kind of important, you know. It's like if you if you call together the board of directors of a corporation or a nonprofit or something, you start by laying out some common facts that everybody agrees on, and then you make a decision based on that, right? Yeah. And of course, everybody still brings their personal preferences and and their personal life experiences to it, but you know, it's generally everybody's kind of on the same page about what the purpose of the meeting is, uh, what what problems we're trying to solve, and what the actual state of affairs in the organization is. Yeah, and absolutely. And now we're suffering from the opposite. Now we have uh, we have 19th century communication problems in the 21st century, but now we have profound uh, communication tools. And so we're, it's like, in the 19th century, century you couldn't hear the people's voice enough and everyone had different information. In the 20th century, you started to hear the people's voice, but everyone was getting the same information. Now we're in the 21st century, you can definitely hear the people's voice down to the individual, uh, but everyone's getting different information based on um, their echo chambers and their ideas. Um, yeah, and, and different information is what you mean some people are informed and some people are are, are believing misinformation <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there's, there's just one truth <laughs> yeah there, there kind of is and um there's yeah, lots there of different ways of interpreting it and and that's that's the that's where the nuance should be not like debating basic facts yeah and i, and I would i would even probably say that there's a specialization you, you could you could focus on the um sort of the myopia of, of the human animals so like me as a, as a software engineer and, a um, you know, with my, my reference set of experiences, I'm arguably only intelligible or, or an expert on certain subjects. And so like, I feel like somehow my reputation should be weighted based on what I act, what actually constitutes me. And I should be, I should be throttled based on things that I, that I don't know about somehow. And I feel like we're probably at one of the very first points in human civilization where there's probably reasonable ways to measure that. Um, and account for it in decision making, and I, I think that's a that's a crucial degree of freedom that um, humanity has had no way of of baking in in a fair way in governmental systems for you know in time immemorial. Yeah, I, I'm imagining some people would say, "Well, just having money doesn't mean that you're not an idiot." You know, look at the my pillow guy. <laughs> For yeah, this, yeah, for example. Yeah. But of course, the, the um, your response to that would be okay. But my pillow guy would be losing money every time he told a lie on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you have stake, and you know, so you have that. Although, although he's willing to spend money to spread misinformation, so maybe that wouldn't be you know enough of a, a disincentive. 
Well, but it might be a great thing though, because it benefits other people. It creates a creates a transfer of wealth, you know, by ah, you know, I see. So the money that they take then be, gets rolled into the UBI or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So however, you know, however that system was structured, but yeah, that's I, I just I'm very I'm very empowered by this idea that people could make direct propose, proposals, um, have sort of a reputation waiting system to where certain people had more votes than others in their areas of expertise. And I think I, I just kind of, I take this leap of faith that that would be, that just seems like a great system, like uh, on its. Uh, I mean, it's certainly something worth thinking about. And and when you're dealing with a, you know, a war torn region or, or, or a place where you just, you know, overthrew um, a dictator, um, you know, it, it seems to me that at a bare minimum, it should be possible to build a piece of software that would be better than nothing and yeah. expecting, expecting some of these places to just jump straight to our really sophisticated and complicated form of government that involves a lot of civics education and so forth. doesn't mm-hmm. seem realistic. I have a, so I have, your proposal might actually be the answer. I mean, there are all those people out there trying to spread democracy. One of the big problems that we've run into is that in practice, humans don't seem to always be able to step up to the plate. Mm-hmm. I'm like chomping at the bit now. Cause this is like the perfect jumping off point into my, my crazy thought experiment. So we just saw the, the wall street bets thing, right? Uh, where, you know, essentially people, a bunch of people get together on Reddit. They identify a weak point in a financial structure. They buy up 50,000 shares, cause a short squeeze and basically create this, this weird little phenomenon never before seen in history. Um, and so I started thinking, well, what if, okay, how would this go down? If, if, uh, you started a decentralized autonomous organization that was like a fantasy government that didn't yet have any real power and, uh, you got people together, they started writing proposals. You started drawing attention to this because people could see, you know, on the internet, like, oh, this would be a cool country if it had this code and that, and this law and that. And then what if we went one step further and um, we allowed people to start funding it? So people thought it was funny to start uh, pouring money into a smart contract. Um, But all of a sudden it reaches a non-funny level where it has something like a few billion dollars. Not unrealistic now that we can see from all these cryptocurrencies on the market. Um, So so now you've got two very important components in creating a government. You've got people getting excited. You've got popularity forming. Um, and you've got money, you've got capital concentrating, which is the essential ingredient in creating real, real world change. Now let's add in a third ingredient where you have a small failed state that has a small population. Um, I don't know if you can hear where I'm think, where, uh, see where I'm going to go with this, but let's say that you had a small state and you had a bunch of funding and then you had a small subset of this organization. Let's say it's 10 or 20 million people that have decided that they are uh, quote unquote, citizens of this fake country. Um, let's say a million of them get on a plane and go to that failed state and decide that they're now the majority of that small country and that the rules of the decentralized autonomous organization rule that geography. And then they, and they have money so they can fund arms and, um, anything else they need and they can draw support on tens of millions of people around the world to fund their organization. And they can even buy their resources through a trust, uh, generating interest off of the blockchain. Um, and they can slowly eat geographical areas and start with the smallest states in the world. And as it gained power and legitimacy, if people saw that it worked, it starts to eat up all of the small failed states around the world uh-huh. because it's more sophisticated, has better funding and is has a, a lower corruption coefficient because it has this argument that as joining this fake country and no one knows if you're a citizen um, because it's all through an anonymous walled address on a blockchain. Um, you get these, you get the citizens of every country and then you reach a, a tipping point where are, uh, aren't, aren't uh, people going to, to accuse you of colonialism? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a brutal guerrilla form of, um, of, yeah, it actually is a, it's it's a, it's a guerrilla, it's a guerrilla imperialism. It's hard to think about, but it's like, 
It's there's no leader. It's just well, you like, know, it's, it's funny. I've noticed that when you talk about this problem of like, how do you solve not just failed states, but also very successful, deeply evil states? <laughs> you know, right? How do you how do you solve these sorts of problems in our global system? And I think part of the appeal of isolationism is because people don't want to think about it because any solution you come up with is going to be messy. Yeah. Um, and they think that the easiest way they seem to think that the easiest way to um, wash them their their hands of any possible moral downside is to just not take a position, just leave the world to do what it's going to do. Um, but even if we're completely selfish and, and we don't care what happens to the other human beings in the world, that's inevitably going to become come crashing down on our borders eventually if we let it get out of hand. Yeah, so we got to do something. Yeah, and I was and to carry to carry my the the thought experiment one step further. Um, now imagine that this gets really popular, and then all of a sudden, bigger states, France, whatever. I imagine that the a vote happens or something. It's revealed that fifty six percent of the French population considers themselves to be citizens of this decentralized autonomous organization, and they declare that France is now subservient to the decentralized autonomous organization. They decide that. France's government is going to tithe to the decentralized autonomous organization. Um, and then eventually you, you know, you, you eat the world with one world government and you essentially disempower the previous powers because now people don't use fiat currencies. They exchange in the digital currencies. Um, so the governments don't even have that much money to fund their operations uh, or their money is not considered legitimate to most organizations. Um, there's this, interesting eat the world narrative um that doesn't even sound that crazy anymore um well it's i mean it's appealing it's appealing that that would be a at least a decentralized form of one world government um yeah but i think i think that it doesn't appeal to me once it jumps from like like i said i think your system that you're proposing here is something that could work possibly and certainly couldn't be worse than nothing in, yeah. in in failed states or in places where we overthrew an evil state and we're empowering the citizens to build a non-evil state um but I, I one of one of my big intuitions about politics and i'm getting the impression you might agree with this so maybe you have a fail safe built into your system to stop it one of my big intuitions about politics is that it's it's easier to break things than it is to fix them. And so I think mm. it makes more sense to focus on improving the aspects of society that suck yeah. um, without risking demolishing the things that are working out pretty well. And so the parts of the world that where the governments are pretty functioning, yes, like let, by all means, let's hack to make it better. But the idea of like some kind of, you know, international anarchist system coming in and overthrowing France it doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I definitely get that. And I, yeah, as a engineer, I, I certainly, um, being a, a builder is sort of a, a core thought and virtue in my mind. And it is harder to build systems that work than it is to um, find the faults in systems. Um, I actually find myself very ideologically opposed to, to hackers and pen testing because like these are, these are people that don't build anything. Uh, from my point of view, they just they just look for the gotcha. They're like the ultimate. So, is there a way to build a failsafe into that system? Um, I I don't know. I I hadn't really. I think you you do take a you you take sort of a leap of faith into trusting people at some point. Like like with all the cryptocurrency. I mean, I guess I guess you could argue that if the if the existing government is working well enough for people, then they wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and then going to your to your point about improving on existing systems, um, I think probably the smallest part down version of this would be like, um, if we were to come up with a more sophisticated way for the American people to express their intent, like, uh, to use a system like this for, um, people to submit hypothetical proposals or, um, modifications to us code. And once a quarter or something like that, um, you would have a diff. You know, if you if you look at software, whenever we submit a pull request, there's a diff between what the code was before and what it's going to be. You can see the additions and subtractions, modifications. Um, you might be able to have a system, not quite referendum, but really to show the performance of Congress versus the intent of the people. So, like, if every quarter people submitted the changes to law they would like to happen, like not not hypothetical and not based on grandstanding, but if there were people quietly working online to actually modify the words of the U.S. code, and then 
submit a diff at the end of the quarter to where it was very, very, very clear what changes the American people wanted to the U.S. code. And then we could compare that to the actual diff of uh, whatever the House resolutions and, and Senate proposals and, and actual things that became law and executive orders. And we could compare the um, the grassroots outcome of what changes to U.S. code people want versus the changes to code that the uh, <clears throat> oligarchy gave us. Um, that I get a lot of Congress people I, I even see are sort of disempowered by the centralization of control in the party leaders and in Congress, which I, I find um, uh, very disappointing. Um, but yeah, if you, if you could have a performance track record where we had a more objective way to compare the intent of the, of the people to the performance of the legislative body, I think that would give, um, it would give politicians a lot fewer places to hide. Uh, as far as their performance, like you could, you could probably take a lot of, um, you could take a lot of inflammatory speech out of politics and start judging people against, um, what you actually wanted. And you could, oh. you could really, yeah, I see what to- you're saying. I mean, in a way we kind of have that already, don't we? Cause we already have, like we pull people and we can see that, you know, X percent of Americans want this policy even, and that it's still not in the bill nevertheless and doesn't really seem to change anybody's mind i mean it, i i one, one of my my, my um cr- criticisms of all of this all along has just been that i don't think people actually most people don't think like you and me i don't think people actually vote based on policy i think they vote based on r or d and maybe one or two issues they care about yeah i, I think that's that's a reduction that we have that i i think is um it's a flaw not a feature um and i I think well, it's certainly a flaw, but it seems to be a flaw in the individuals, not in the system. Am I wrong about that? I don't know. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I think um, there isn't the bandwidth, the communication between government and individual is not good. You know, it's not, and and so you have a huge fallacy when you poll people is that you shape the question. So if I shape the question, I'm going to change. You know, I'm essentially putting words in your mouth. I'm I'm telling you what you care about before you even express what you care about. Um, and so like a free form system where people are just submitting the changes that they think should happen, um, is almost certainly going to yield, um, nonlinear, unintuitive outcomes. Like people are going to submit, you know, weird changes to parking laws on their streets and uh, weird change. Like you might have cities that, that totally want to upend the zoning rules in their city because they want. They want businesses and homes and uh, parks like all in the same place, uh, you know, like like things like that. Like you would get little things that you couldn't even possibly form that complexity at a national or like your city hall is is like woefully inadequate for capturing the complexity of, you know, 10,000 people's voices in an area like expressing the little changes they want. Um, and we know this from open source software, like um, you would be. Uh, you'd be at a great disadvantage, no matter how fu- how well funded you were at this point, to create a piece of software that functioned better than the open source equivalent nowadays. Uh, because we know from a fact that when you you open source something like that to the community, the the smart people come out of the woodwork who aren't beholden to anyone, and they start they start tinkering with things for their own purposes, and they you they give you emergent outcomes that are better than any centralized outcomes you could conceive of. And I, I think that's the essential element that I would want to get a hold of is to get beyond polling, get beyond asking, get beyond controlled forms of communication and um, really open up the door to, you know, whatever you could do to get a transcript of what people actually wanted um, and then compare that to what you're actually doing. Um, I think the ideation there, there's incredible incredible amount of uh, untapped human capital there. And I, I think it's just a matter of opening up the communication um, pipeline. Yeah, I see what you mean about communication. It does seem to be mainly kind of one way. The re- Your representative and your, you know, your congressman will come and talk to you and he might ask you, what do you think about this? And then he listens to a couple of people shout something out at a town hall. And that's about all the feedback that he gets other than being voted out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 can, I see your point that 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 would be more informative than polling. Okay. And so what are you suggesting that we would do with that in our system? Just that it would be, it would just kind of reshape the way um, debate in politics goes. It gives you something else to say about your opponent. So-and-so's policies are out of step with the American people as opposed to, you know, 
ad hominem attacks and so forth that we tend to go go to word. Although, again, I think part of the reason people do that is because it works. <laughs> well, <laughs> and okay, it works but- because regular people don't vote intelligently. I think that's one step. And then I think, uh, you know, good old, good old Rogan uh, and some of those people have had, have made a good point about um, how the, the, the debate formats that we subscribe to are stupid in this day and age. And so like it, it's silly to elect a world leader based on, you know, two hours of sound bites um, there. And there's no reason why you couldn't have. Oh no. Yeah. The presidential debates, they're not even as good as like your high school debate club debates. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, along those lines, you know, look at how um, humanizing and enlightening Bernie on Rogan was like three to four hours of that guy just talking in a relaxed environment. You get such a deeper sense of how intelligent and well thought out that human is. Um, and so I think just that context where if we, if we move in the direction of these more informal types of media, long form, less sensational types of media to where like, I'd like to see a, a six hour presidential debate. Like if they're sitting around a table, letting these people speak long form, like let, let it go. So as long as it needs to go for these people to run out of gas. I actually like that idea. I I think that the reason the networks don't do it is because of the profit incentive. They want to, they want to make money on it mm -hmm. and they're concerned about, you know, keeping it entertaining um well we know the way they're going personally i i kind of like i started rewatching um what's it called uh west wing a few months ago and the first thing i do i was like oh my gosh politics was so much chiller back then my part of the reason politics was chiller is because it was so much more boring like bring the boring back into politics please (laughs) yeah they're not going to make money that's the problem yeah and i think that's i think it's sort of a death knell uh, for them, and, you know, things get things get the most rigid right before they crumble. And I, I think, um, you know, the rise of the podcast has has been sort of a a canary in the coal mine. Like, I don't I don't need to have people profiteer off of my outrage. I'd rather I'd rather listen to a trusted voice that calms me down and you know gives me a perspective to think about. That's um, true, but then that's also very self selecting. I mean, if you look at the um, the kind of ecosystem of grassroots podcasting. Um, yeah, there are, there are some shows like ours that try to do nuanced discussion of both sides of an issue, et cetera. Um, and to, to some extent, even really popular ones like Rogan's Rogan's do. Um, but then, you know, for each one of those, there's like a dozen or a hundred that are super successful because they just make money by pandering to an audience and just reinforcing their preconceptions. Cause that's what yeah. people like. Like Alex Jones, crazy people. Yeah, exactly. Or TYT <clears throat> would be on the, the left wing version of that. Yeah, yeah. I can. I. I but I, I feel like the decentralization of conversation here, the the siloing, the echo chambers, it's not going to go away. And I, I think we we probably shouldn't even hope for it to go away. We should just start figuring out what that means and what our coping mechanisms are going to be and how we can operate effectively. Uh, Because in a way it's, it's an expression, it's a diversity of thoughts, diversity of opinion. People care about different subjects um, and we need to find a way to balance in those discussions and uh, sort of factor in repute. And that's sort of a a lot of that's the leading edge of, you know, my thinking in this, like uh, how do we capitalize on decentralization of, of ideas and thought and reputation um, I, I feel like it's, it's almost needed. Like we, we're sort of being pushed to imagine, um, forms of government that you know, like that even go beyond what we've discovered, you know, our, our best practices now. And like, you know, let's find new ways that we can use communication to, uh, bring the corruption coefficient on our governmental systems down, um, and, and those kinds of things and, and increase the, the weighting of good voices and, you know, Dethrottle the waiting of bad voices and do it more in yeah, real time. Yeah. One, one, one idea that I've pushed on this show off and on, um, and I, I mentioned this to you uh, off air, um, is a kind of new UN with teeth, right? Where mm-hmm. the only members of the UN would be, and you could call it something else to not confuse it with the old UN, mm-hmm. um, only member states could be, would, would be liberal democracies, right? So only liberal democracies can be members and then collectively they can police the world um, 
through ideally not through war because there's lots of different ways of doing it you know one one example you could think of is like if a if a mob was taking over new york city we wouldn't declare war on new york city we would just go kill the mobsters and arrest the ones who didn't run away right um so if if we if we had said new u.n that wasn't doing silly things like putting Saudi Arabia in charge of the Human Rights Council giant eye roll. Um, you know, it was made up of only countries that actually do have the moral high ground, not because they're perfect, but because they're liberal democracies. They're at least accountable to their people. They at least rec- um, recognize basic universal human rights. And then, you know, um, we can we can police the world that way with the moral authority to do so. And it seems to me that your idea of uh, decentralized software for helping, like empowering, providing a tool for people to build a democracy from the ground up in their own country would be an essential ingredient to that. Yeah. I mean, you could even, I I think, okay. So this sort of reminds me of um, uh, one of the things that told me later last year that cryptocurrency wasn't going to go away because of, um, any sort of action by a large government was uh, we'd found out that the CIA or the FBI was using USDC, a cryptocurrency dollar backed stable coin to get money into the wallets of insurgents in Venezuela. Um, so, cause it skips, it skips the traditional banking system. And I think imagining as you were talking about the idea of a UN with teeth, I started thinking, Oh, okay, well, how could I have a hybrid system where um, this, organization could gain legitimacy um, through contribution and taxation from citizens of other countries. So like you could, you could essentially get a mass, I like that idea, a mass tributary system that jumps right over um, the nation state that that person lives in. And so uh, you, you do reach a natural tipping point where you like now all of a sudden this organization can communicate with those nation states and you'll reach tipping points where you, where this new organization says, Hey guy, fifty uh, percent of your populace um, is part of my organization and is expressing this, so I think you should do this. Um, like you start to get this, you start to get this highly democratic layer of accountability, um, and then yeah, if if you give it money, if you give it resources to where it can again raise its own army and its own police force um, and start to. Yeah, I guess I was imagining it would be funded by contributions from the governments, but you could maybe that's how you could get it started. And then and then it could really take off with contributions from regular people. I like that idea a lot, actually. Um, I I should say, though, like um, I'm I'm not an advocate to clarify of one world government. I do think that this said new UN should respect the sovereignty of liberal democracies. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if you if you qualify to be a member, then you're, you're the sovereignty of your country is also re- respected. You're not going to be um I mean un- unless, you know, I, I, I guess if like Donald Trump's coup had succeeded and turned us into a military dictatorship, then we would get kicked out, we get ousted from it and and uh, and then that would be handled that way. Yeah, yeah, I, I wonder. It would be like but I, I think something like this, something like um a borderless citizenship protocol of some kind um it could be a check against power. Like it's, it's sort of like it's giving especially agitated people a voice um, to where they can move, they can move capital and resources to, to uh, express their intent. And then how that, how enforcement happens or how those ideas get communicated back downstream or sideways to governments in order to affect policy change. Um, There's a lot of very, a lot of, um, variance there but I, I feel like um overall any move to get down to the individual voice and and capture the intent of people in an intelligent way and not in a rabble rousing way i think is going to yield powerful and counterintuitive results that we we finally we at this point in human history there's the potential for something really crazy like that it's only been the last 30 years that we have truly scalable communication tools that can reach all over the world. Um, and, um, I, I think all of us is surely smarter than some of us. 
Oh yeah, for sure. I, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I, I mean, I, like I said, I, I like your idea. I think it should be part of the new UN with teeth. I think that there has to be some reason why previous attempts to, now of course, not that all did, but many previous attempts to help inspire democracy and help people build their own democracies failed. Um, so maybe this would increase the odds of those succeeding. Who knows? Maybe it would even have a hundred percent success rate. But I, I, I think it's worth trying it. I would be surprised if it didn't have a higher success rate than the old system. Um, and within the U.S., you you suggested uh, a system. I don't, I'm not sure what you call it exactly, but it's basically like it sounds to me like blockchain pulling on steroids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like it's literally like let people write laws, uh, you know, overwrite parts of the U.S. code, and then you know, on us we can review it on a rolling basis and yeah, see. So it doesn't like become law instantly the way it doesn't in, in this, this other system, because that would go against our constitution, but it at least makes it part of the conversation. And now you can compare it to the actual law on hand and, and let people know that like objectively, this is how this law compares to what the American people yeah. actually want. And I would, I would, I would think, I would hope the end point of that would be that election cycles would get shorter that we wouldn't uh, like, you might get to a point where, um, we don't even care what you have to say. Like, hey, you're getting elected. Are you going to do the? Are you going to submit the changes, or do we need to get someone else to do it? Like, it might just be like because it would be understood that our positions are too complex to sum up in a couple of speeches and commercials. Like, you know what we want. Go do it, or we're going to get someone else to do it. I think that would be a great outcome. You know, get get out of the the showmanship of elections and whatever. Like, I don't I don't care how cute your family is, um, kind of thing. Like get in there and affect the change that we want. Um, and let the American people know that, oh, I can, I can express what I want and then get, um, you know, viral support behind it with, you know, to startling effect. That's true. And then you could actually, you, you could actually have a bill written by the people that you could just show to your congressman and ask, do you support this bill? And then vote accordingly. Yeah. And then, then your Congress people would be super accountable to you and be like, Hey, what's that bill you, um, presented? Is that one that we put together or is that some other random thing? Does it jive with our interests? Um, and that becomes the measuring stick just because, and then that'd be a very objective measure and be like, this person is doing what the people want or not. And like, you can, you can see it to be in black and white, uh, for the first time in, in the history of the country. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like both those ideas. Um, thanks, Ryan. I, I really appreciate all your input. I have one last question for you, and then we can sign out. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. I know I, well, I know you're you're going to say yes, but I'm hoping you'll elaborate on why, <laughs> since you understand this tech stuff better than I do. What do you think about uh, Yang's blockchain voting proposal? I, I think it's obvious. Um, I mean, I, I when I was watching the election fiasco kind of play out with mail-in ballots, I'm like, what system can you, like, I'm not, a, I'm not among the people that um, are like, oh, the election was fraudulent. But I started thinking, like, if I'm a malicious actor, what's the easier system to assault than the U.S. Postal Service? I'm like, that's so easy. That would be so easy. Yeah, um, but, um, but I think blockchain, a software solution, uh, you know, where everyone has a running tally of the votes uh, and you know, we have an identity solution on the blockchain where everyone has a public key, private key wallet um, that is tied to your U.S. government identity, and that becomes your proxy for voting. And obviously, dead wallets can't vote. Um, and you know, you reduce voting to a transaction on your phone um, that happens instantly. You wouldn't even need November seventh. You would have um, a running tally all year long. People could switch their votes as long as the election cycle was in place. And really, November 7th would just be the day that you lock it in. Everyone would know who was going to be president the whole time. Yeah, that after this debacle that we had last time around, that sounds really nice. Now, of course, the, the debacle wasn't really the voting system itself. Actually, I should ask you really quickly, um, do, do they use any kind of, of blockchain or whatever on the ex- existing voting systems that people have now? I guess not, because it's all by mail. It's more about accounting process than anything, right? No, no, yeah. And so like... um. You look at the the fundamental theory behind um, blockchain systems. There's there's two elements. One is the data structure. So a blockchain data structure is basically saying, I can't. You can't fake the next the the previous block of information because 
it included the signatures from a previous block of information and every block has a signature. And so like there's this unbreakable chain back to the very first action, like a, like an infinite um, you know, record of actions back to the very first action. So um, you don't have that. And, and then you have the consensus mechanism, which is um, that's the source of your security. That's what proof of work is in the Bitcoin sphere. That's what proof of stake is in, in other places. Um, okay. Um, and well, so oh, go ahead, Ryan. Sorry, I was going to say yes. Yeah, so you 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 essentially um, it's a data structure and a security tool, and it's a way to make sure that lots of people have the log of events, and that no one can be a bad actor. And at the end of at the end of it, everyone has to agree on the same numbers, or else fraud happened. Um, yeah, although, well, I mean, I I I think that Donald Trump would definitely not agree unless he won, no matter what. It doesn't matter what the facts are. <laughs> Right. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, so the how, do you, how do you handle that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that the integrity of such a system would revolve around its track record of never breaking. And so, like, uh, Bitcoin is an amazing thing because if someone could hack it, they'd be richer than I would say Jeff Bezos, but now it's Elon Musk. They'd be richer than Elon Musk if they could hack it. So they clearly can't. It's been ten years. It's um, you know, like if we had a system where well, yeah, we but now we're... you're using logic again. I'm just saying, oh, that, oh. you know, there there are there are bad actors outside the system who will just say, I don't agree with those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way around that. I think you got to allow for some level of conflict in a system. You'd be like, well, we'll agree to disagree. And you know, you might disagree, but you're not. Yeah. We've got facts on our side and you're just a sore loser. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You're just gone. (laughs) Yeah. You're you're out, buddy. Okay. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Um, And uh, is there anything you want to say? Yeah. I mean, I feel like um, if uh, I I feel like moving forward is our gumbo, you know, Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together, through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.